0: Hi, my name is Armando Salas, and you're listening to The Cinematography Podcast.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to The Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock, and Ilya Friedman.
2: Hey, Ilya. Hey, Ben. How are you? It's come to my attention that we don't introduce ourselves very well, so I want to ask you to actually introduce yourself. Welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. Who are you? Hey, I'm Ilya
3: Friedman. I run a company in Burbank, California called Hot Rod Cameras. Uh, We're kind of like a camera shop no actually we're not like a camera shop we are a camera shop but we're not like any other I mean that in the best possible way we're specializing the motion picture and television industry for uh, equipment and I myself am a I would say sometimes a technical consultant to Hollywood to motion pictures television commercials that sort of thing uh, that's what are you, where you can find me Monday through Friday how about you Ben Ben what are you who, do, who are you I know we don't introduce ourselves we so. really
2: don't uh, I'm Ben Rock I am a uh, director uh, sometimes co-writer with Bob DeRosa on various projects sometimes producer I I have worked in films I have worked in television two years ago I I co-wrote and directed a horror podcast called Video Palace for Shudder Uh, uh, a really great a really
3: really great program too by the way
2: and, and it led to a job that I can't talk about right now, but it's something Bob and I are working on uh, that we just turned in a new draft on, uh, on this past Friday. So uh, yeah, I'm Ben Rock. Check me out at benrockonline.com. Anyway, uh, Ilya, who is on the show today?
3: Hey, we have a fantastic uh, director of photography named Armando Salas. He might be known to some of our listeners as the director of photography for Ozark. He did uh, quite a bit of season two and three. I
2: think I've heard of that show.
3: Yeah, a little bit. We've talked about it once or twice as well, too. And if you have Netflix, <laughs> you've probably seen it as one of their original series up in front of you that you uh, should watch. And if you haven't watched it, oh, man, go go watch it. Yeah, go, go hey, watch that.
2: And I'd like to say I'm a fan of the show, but you are a super fan of the show.
3: I am a super fan of the show. It's really great. And I, I can't wait to see more.
2: Love it. Well, I love how they left season three and it was one of the best cliffhangers in a long time. Won't blow it for anyone, but I cannot wait for season four. Oh my God. Oh my God. But it's, uh, it's such a great show. And Armando is the first of two DPs from, uh, from Ozark who we're going to be interviewing who are both Emmy nominated. So that's
3: correct. They're both nominated for Emmys, uh, coming up really soon here. So, uh, good luck to both of them. But Hey, before we get to the interview, Ben, what's our, uh, close focus, uh, this week?
2: Well, it's sort of an update. Uh, We wanted to talk about the box office, the big old box office, since uh, we are in COVID lockdown territory and most movie theaters in America are not open, but some are starting to open. In fact, I heard uh, John Horn on KPCC the other day talk about driving to Las Vegas to see Tenet in a theater in a casino and he described the movie-going experience, uh, which I still think like as much as I love going to see movies in a theater, it would be a nonstop feeling of like I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die. But apparently, they uh, you, you reserved seats ahead of time. You reserved. They blocked off seats between everybody. They cleaned out the whole theater in between. You were required to wear a mask. Everyone was required to wear a mask. There is contactless purchasing of concessions and of uh, tickets, and it it sounds. Like, if I didn't have a two-year-old son and was able to do things in the first place, I might consider it. Of course, I can't do it anyway because no movie theater in Los Angeles County is currently open.
3: Yes. <laughs> so yes, that's true.
2: So we have a kind of a diverging road right now. We have two movies that came out this past week. One which, uh, our last episode, uh, shot by Mandy Walker, uh, Mulan. And the other one, Christopher Nolan's new movie, Tenet and that one is only coming out in theaters there is no way to stream Tenet yet and there is no premium streaming available of of any kind whereas Mulan if you already have Disney Plus which is a subscription service in and of itself for a $30 premium you can watch mulan now we don't have actual numbers that i was able to find uh, regarding to how much money disney raked in with mulan we know that trolls world tour a few months ago made over 100 million dollars and that was a 20 dollar premium ticket that was a movie that was destined for theaters that they took that you know they they put on streaming instead uh what we do know is the app stores have shown a 68 percent uptick in the downloads of disney plus's apps across the various platforms. This is uh, according to Forbes magazine. And uh, I think it's quite telling. Now, from what I was able to find numbers-wise on Tenant, it's doing reasonably well overseas, where uh, they have apparently figured out how to have society happen uh with a pandemic and and keep their numbers low which is something that we're just physically incapable of doing over here because freedom or some bullshit um (laughs) so overseas apparently tenant which is a i believe a 200 million dollar movie has made Mm -hmm. in the neighborhood of 150 million already but Uh,
3: most most recent numbers are like about 178 179 something like that not bad And,
2: and, and, uh, you know, uh, send all the hate mail. I'm a giant Christopher Nolan fan. Can't get enough of Christopher Nolan. Want to see this movie badly, but I also want to live. So I'm not going to the movie theaters because there are no movie theaters where it's playing in L.A. Anyway, but in America, apparently it made 15 million at, you know, theaters such as this uh, Las Vegas situation, you know, uh, socially distanced movie going situation. So, Ilya, what do you what's the prognosis? What do you think about all this? Well, I think it's
3: really interesting, and uh, there's kind of a battle playing out because if Mulan got, let's say, seven million people about seven, if seven million people uh, on worldwide on the service paid thirty dollars, it made as much money as Tenet had in the theaters. Except Tenet didn't actually make as much because they had to share some of that profit with the theaters, so there was a split. Whereas Disney got to keep much of that money, if not almost the vast majority of that money, maybe they had a little bit that they had to give to Amazon or whoever the their credit card processor was, but for the most part... Uh, We don't know what Disney, what Disney did, but if we're talking about like a box office showdown here, um, you know, tenant, we have their numbers, 200 million worldwide. I'm assuming the budget was, uh, was similar to that. So they've already made their money back uh, ostensibly, at least as far as we can tell from the outside. So who had the better release strategy? It's impossible to say, but uh, clearly we can see that uh, (laughs) the U.S. box office is anemic at best. And uh, we can't figure out how to get back into theaters because we can't get a handle on the pandemic. And so until that happens, uh, I think there'll be much less tenants and much more Mulans, so to speak,
2: <laughs> coming up. Well, on the same uh, episode of I believe it was The Frame, Yeah, John Horn was discussing how Cinemark, which is the third largest movie theater chain in America. And by the way, uh, closest to us, there's a Cinemark theater <laughs> it's a, and it's our it's favorite theater, theater to go to. Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Anyway, um, so Cinemark last year, this quarter gross, I believe, or maybe it was the yearly gross, was $500 million. And currently it is like $17,000. Like, like their grosses are extraordinarily low. And of course they are because movie theaters have been closed since March. So our, this quarter movie theaters are, are just starting to reopen and they're just starting to figure out how to make a movie going. Not a terrifying life and death ordeal, which it never was before or very rarely. Was.
3: Uh, I, I'm going to I'm going to pitch you something here, which I feel is uh, not 100 percent related, but tangentially related. And I hope that you can give me some quick feedback to so, so case, right. uh, it's something I should really go forward with and maybe even promote here on the podcast. But I'm thinking about raffling off access like two or three hour windows to the hot rod cameras screening room, like a private thing that. Uh, someone can go in there, they can log into their Amazon Prime or they can bring their own 4K Blu-ray DVD, our our 4K screening room, which holds
2: it has 16 premium seats. But I was well, th- what you what you want to have is you want to have like, uh, you know, Amazon Prime or and, and Disney Plus there so they can go there and, and for instance, watch Mulan yep. on your we screen. Have,
3: we have all those services, but I, I wasn't interested in competing in any way with the uh, the, th- the traditional theaters out there. But I was thinking about just like raffling off. Hey, it's an evening in the Hot Rod Camera screening room for you and five friends. So six of you can come in there. You have full access. Here's the remote. Here's how you log in. You can watch whatever you want and you can capture that movie going experience, uh, you know, because you have a a 10 foot screen and a private room with super premium sound uh, just as like, hey, uh, I, I mean, right. I built this thing and it's not getting used and I can't use it for the purpose it was originally designed for. And but. You know, hey, I could certainly have someone hang out at the shop for a couple hours and then uh, maybe listeners of this podcast, if they want to enter a contest or something like following us on Instagram or tagging us or doing something, maybe then we could randomly select someone that, voila, if they're in the L.A. area and they want to have a private movie going experience, they can watch whatever they want. Uh, What what do you think? Do you think that's something that people who miss the theater would like to go do?
2: I think it's good, but I think you're opening yourself up to a bit of liability if people went there and got sick. And I feel like you would need to sanitize the living fuck out of it before anybody would be allowed in there. You'd have to take everybody's temperature on the way in and, uh, you know, preferably do a COVID well, test.
3: I-, I was thinking that you'd only bring the people who are in your household. And that we would, of course, do a full wipe down of everything beforehand and and, and after. But it's like uh, it wasn't it wouldn't be the general public. You couldn't just come in with a bunch of people. It would just be like, hey, your household, you want gotcha. to want to come in here with you, your loved ones, and you want to have access to it. Great. It's not like you, th- there would be no strangers involved. It would just be your whoever your people are. You get to go do it.
2: Well, I can attest to how awesome your screening room is, and uh, I would love to go see something in your screening room. So I think it's a cool idea. I, you know, I I would recommend trying to figure out a way to make it something that would be a new release, like Bill and Ted Face the Music or Mulan, or there's no way to do Tenant, but um. <laughs> can't can't do
3: Tenant. I'm totally happy to do those things. We have all of the services available, including HBO Max, so all that stuff is. But at the same time, uh, and we're not charging any money for it. It just would be, you know. Like would, Well,
2: yeah. I think you have a great screening room and, uh, you know, I mean, obviously this is something that would only be open to people who are in L.A. or could get to L.A. Correct.
3: Uh, I, and we could be flexible on the day, too. It could be a weekend. It could be a weekday. It could be something like that. But go in there and watch something. I, uh, You know, your friend and mine, Josh, who helped build the screening room, has swore up and down that the next time uh, Lord of the Rings is showing there, he wants to be there. I haven't had the heart to tell him that I won't be there with him. If that's the case, he can go in there and, and watch it by himself. So <laughs> anyway uh it's something i've been thinking about i wanted to get your feedback and if it felt into this whole thing like maybe private screening rooms are sort of the the future of movie going in it that's I, th-
2: I think you know karaoke style private screening rooms that still won't solve the problem of something like tenant because uh i'm pretty sure that they want you to see that projected in film but uh i do think that you know an imax theater socially distanced would probably be an adequate way to uh to see it, and I say adequate. I'm choosing my words carefully. It's not. It's still not ideal. The ideal way to see it is in a crowded theater, where where people are packed in and enjoying it, and their emotions and and uh, excitement and horror and whatever are all uh, contagious to you as a as a fellow viewer. Uh, that we're not going to have. I mean, we might not have it depending, uh, you know, six months or a year from now. And and we're only six months into this thing now, so and, and it ha- and it feels like eternity. I feel like we're you know it's. March 2000th, right now I I, want to redo on the whole thing I I, want to basically be the same age I was when this thing started because you know we all hit the pause button on everything we were doing Uh, I am noticing that uh, some like late night talk shows like Bill Maher for instance are now having a studio audience again but they're doing it socially distanced everyone's tested for for COVID also I keep hearing on my various science podcasts about these rapid COVID tests. That are like pregnancy tests where basically you take a swab of saliva you pee on a stick, you don't pee on a stick, but you, you put saliva on a swab like a litmus paper kind of thing and find out immediately if you are covid positive and they are not 100 percent accurate, which is part of the problem. But what everyone is saying is like even the more accurate ones aren't accurate. Because it takes, you know, a matter of sometimes a week to two weeks to get results. So what's the accuracy there? It's not really a useful test. And if they gave these to everybody that we could get back to our lives. So, um, you know, as we see production ramping back up, I'm hoping that this becomes a thing that we can actually get our hands on.
3: I saw uh, some sort of announcement from an Israeli company that supposedly has a breathalyzer COVID test that literally you breathe into a tube and it immediately tells you like instantly within five or 10 seconds whether or not you're
2: positive. Well, that's what yeah. we need. I also heard that there is now a mask that someone is developing that the mask will tell you whether or not you have wow. it. So I feel like if we are able to have widespread, super inexpensive testing, why we could get right back to our lives. That like we could. I, I don't know that I'd be going to movie movie theaters next week, but I feel, I would feel safe. Going to movie theater knowing that, in all likelihood, you know most of the people who could have had it are screened out. They're saying these tests are about eighty percent accurate. So if you could filter eighty percent of the people who might be contagious out of a situation, then that might be an acceptable level of risk. But I don't know.
3: I'm still not eating in restaurants, and a lot of people aren't either. So, but in other, oh god, no! I haven't eaten in a restaurant since March. But in, uh, I
2: have gotten takeout, but that's about it. I able, anyway. But yeah, but. Uh, Uh, enough about all that congratulations to both mulan and tenet i wish i could see both of them on the big screen i i have not yet seen mulan but i would love to see it uh mandy walker was a great interview and uh tenet we we have yet to interview hoita is that his name yeah
3: hoitman hoitman
2: yeah we we have yet to interview him i'd love to he's a great dp He's shot many movies that I love, not just the Nolan ones, but uh, still a ways to go before we can get back to normal.
3: Yeah. hey, Well, I think that's a great place that we should transition into our interview with Armando Salas. And here he is.
2: The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right, we are here today with Armando Salas, ASC, recently nominated for an Emmy for Ozark. Thank you so much for coming on. I kind of want to talk about Ozark before we kind of get into your background, because Ozark is just such a gorgeous show. I'm shocked at how dark it makes broad daylight look. I I don't know exactly how you do that. Can you talk about kind of the creative approach to shooting exteriors the way that you
0: do? These characters, operate in the shadows Mm -hmm. they're all living double lives so it's the idea of the concealed part of yourself that you don't necessarily show other people and visually that translates into you know you're always magically in that shadow of a building or a tree and there might be hard sun dappling through the trees or kicking off the water but the the characters that live in this world are always you know in silhouette or in the shadows And that is very much a part of the story and the visual conceit Mm -hmm. of how we tell that story. So a combination of lensing, color temperature, shallow depth of field, uh, underexposure. But, you know, when you look at a a daytime exterior on the show, it's not necessarily underexposed in the sense that there'll be very bright highlights kind of uh, reflecting off the water or kicking off a, a, a surface. But so you understand that you're that the image is is fully exposed, yet the majority of the information in it is living in that bottom, you know, <laughs> 10% of the curve, right? Where, where everything is operating in like the underbelly of the society and, and these characters.
2: So does that also involve like, do you, do you do tons of like negative fill and like, do you use a lot of like, where most people yeah. use reflector boards or something? Do you just like have flags everywhere and just take light out?
0: Yes. I mean, our key grip Landon Riddell on season three was very, very busy on every daytime exterior. We're doing <laughs> m- massive amounts of negative fill and of overheads. You know, if it's a scene that can be shot very quickly because it's just a, a small piece or an interstitial or just something that we know is going to be a one we'll time it so that, okay, when the sun comes behind this tree from 4 to 5.30, we can do this bit. And as long as things are moving along in the schedule, we, we, we do find places that we can do that kind of planning. Otherwise, we have massive amounts of overheads. So we might have one, two, three overheads on, you know, condors and petty bones and uh, negative fill behind the camera, negative fill to one side to create shape. So it, 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 the daytime exteriors are a huge amount of the planning and also the frustration because you're at the mercy of weather. And we're shooting the show in Atlanta for the Ozarks. So summer in Atlanta is not really the look that we want (laughs) for the daytime exterior. So it's, it's really a lot of, a lot goes into that in terms of both planning and execution.
2: I imagine art department must have their hands full just covering up clay. <laughs> so, tell me a little bit about coming into a show after the look is already established. Because your your background, a lot of your background are are uh, indie features where you were able to kind of set up the look and create the look yourself, and also some shows that you uh, where you where you created the look. What's it like taking the hand off from somebody else? And at that point, does it become yours? Are you referring back to like? Well, uh, how does that process work for you?
0: So in the case of Ozark, the aesthetic was there from season one. And again, it was evolving in season two. So I was going to be part of that evolution. And I was a fan of the show. So it it would be very different if I was coming into a show where I didn't like the way it looked, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, uh, that would be very hard because, I, (laughs) uh, you know, I I wouldn't take that job or I would say, you know, are you hiring me to change this to to, to dramatically? Because I, I don't know that I can give you what. You're used to seeing here. So in the case of the show, it was me kind of living in it, watching dailies, talking to Jason, talking to Ben, absorbing what they were doing. And so the first couple episodes, you're you know questioning yourself. You're you're thinking, okay, how do I do X, Y, and Z things that you might have done very instinctually before. But I would say by the time I got to my next block. I was part of the look. I was part mm-hmm. of the evolution of the look, and at that point, you're just making decisions the way you always make decisions, and, and you know, instinctually, and uh, prepping with the director and responding to what you're getting in the script. Then, by the time season three came around, I was heavily involved five weeks before principal photography began and developing the workflow and uh, creating, you know, the package and, and, and all that. So at that point it was much more of a team effort. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it it didn't feel limiting in any way except for maybe my first two episodes on the show where I was kind of getting my footing.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And I mean, that show has, in my opinion, a look that belongs on the big screen. It looks as good as any movie you would see in the theater. Uh, and, and I don't really know anything about like the way Netflix works. Are you on more of a feature film kind of a schedule when you're doing it, or is it still a very short TV kind of a schedule?
0: It's funny because I came from Indie Features where, you know, you're shooting a movie in 18 to 30 days, depending on the budget, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's generally like 100 pages of script, and let's just say you're doing it in 20 days. And I'm thinking, now I'm moving into episodic, right, when I got a break, and uh, (laughs) I'm going to have more time, and it's exactly the same schedule. I mean, Ozark (laughs) is... You know, season three was we would do two episode blocks. The scripts are about 50 to 55 pages long. So now you're talking about a 100 to 110 pages, and we shoot it in 22 days. Oh, wow. So, so nothing changed. Like, I have never had any more time than I had on this, you know, these tiny indie features. But what you do have is much more resources yeah. and incredible staff, and you have, you know, rigging crews, and you have, better toys and you have really kind of A-list crew members in your key positions who are helping you execute much more sophisticated shots. than you could have done when you're, you know, in a tiny indie feature and, and begging, borrowing and stealing for equipment. You know? <laughs> but time-wise, it, it's, it's always been extremely crunched. So what we do on Ozark is we trade quantity for quality. You know, we don't do a lot of coverage on the show. The directors are given the freedom and are empowered by Jason and the producers that, there's no one over their shoulders. There's no kind of mandate for coverage. You you have to use your best judgment and really go for it and and try to be cinematic. And uh, so yeah, we we basically just do less shots so that we can try to maximize the production value.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I probably should have looked this up, but like, are there a lot of guest directors? It seems like it. It seems like a tight knit family of of people.
0: So season three had four directors. Mm-hmm there's so there's always guest directors you know jason usually directs a couple episodes and then there's a a handful of directors that come in but they they keep going back to the same people obviously who they've had uh success with in the past
2: well my, my question uh, always when we're talking to someone who does episodic television is you know when a guest director comes in uh if they say hey we're going to do you know a shot that's like and they describe a shot that's totally unlike the kind of shots that you do or the kinds of setups that you do in Ozark. Do you ever kind of, because you're shooting multiple episodes, uh, is part of your job to kind of say, well, here's maybe the way we might do this on the show and to kind of keep a a quality control so it all feels like one of the same piece?
0: That definitely, I can't think of a a moment where that happened on Ozark, but you also have directors asking questions like, I want to do this thing for this scene, or this is really important for me and I'd like to approach it this way, how would you do that on this show? Or how, you know, what what is the mode of executing that concept here that falls within the look of the show? So you get questions like that as well. Generally, you know, the directors, this is what they do for a living, right? They go mm-hmm. from show to show, so they know that their job is to bring their touch to a show that already has an established paradigm. Mm-hmm. So hopefully you don't have an uphill battle uh, it, it does happen. I mean, and I've been on other shows where the director has said, I want to do X, Y, and Z. And I've said, we don't do that. <laughs> that's not, that's not the approach. So tell me what you're trying to capture. How, you know, what does that mean to you? Why, why do you want to do that? How, maybe, it, maybe there's a, a, a solution of, of the way we approach it on this particular uh, project that I could pitch to you that would fulfill that requirement. And if they're like, no, then then I just say, okay, great. Then we should have a conversation with the showrunner or the producing director or whoever is kind of in charge to say, you know, to tell them why this is important to you because I don't feel like that will gel with the rest of the season. And if it's important for this to be very different visually because this episode, like if you're thinking about the West Wing that never had a single handheld shot and then all of a sudden had an entire episode that was handheld, right? That's that pro- There was probably three months of conversations that went into that decision. It, it wasn't it wasn't somebody who was just like, hey, guys, we're going handheld now, you know, um, I'm freelancing. Yeah. So it's, a, it's all a team effort. And in the end, it, the, the, the more cohesive the team is, the better the results are going to be.
2: So uh, let's go back a little bit and, and talk about your background. And I and I always uh, wait a break... second. Wait a second. I got a couple oh. of Ozark questions before uh, you, you, you go down that okay. path. <laughs>
3: uh you're nominated for boss fight boss fight is an incredibly visual and beautiful episode and uh i remember really specifically in that episode uh jason bateman his character is thrown into like this pit of despair he's thrown into this like this yeah you you remember what i'm talking about ben Uh, can you talk at all about your only light source i believe and this is me going from memory here is like a shaft of light coming from uh, like I, I want to say like an opening at the top of this pit or something like that there's like one maybe window and and that's it and you're otherwise in this like just completely you know uh, and, and he's supposed to be tortured and so there's bright light and noise and other things but can you talk a little bit about how you decided to craft what that experience was going to, to, to look and feel like First of all, thank you.
0: Uh, Yeah, boss fight was a lot of fun because not just that scene, but we had, while he's in there, he's having flashbacks to his youth. We have Navarro really introduced. We had seen him before, but now he's got kind of real meaty scenes. And so we're in the Navarro compound and we're in the Ozarks uh, with our usual cast trying to deal with the fallout of, of Marty being kidnapped and all of these storylines are woven together. So we're jumping geographically and we're jumping in time. So it was great fun and a great challenge to kind of track all that and give each of those elements a distinctive look, but also weave it together so it wasn't too jarring as you're cutting from, from place to place, but also, letting the audience know visually very quickly, where, where are we right now? So that particular set, uh, that was, that was a build, the Navarro compound, the rest of the compound is a location. And that was a build, uh, David Bamba and I, the production designer and I collaborated very closely on the dimensions, the, textures he it was all real cobblestone like i oh, mean really? it was really really wow. torture set to even stand on so we shot everything <laughs> mostly from a, a, a crane arm but you know jason uh he likes to say he didn't have to act like he was being tortured because anytime he sat down or laid down it, it was torturous i mean it's <laughs> uh, there's no straight lines it's all uh, con concave surfaces it's a round opening to the top where navarro can peer peer down but yeah building that no light trickle-down light through the shaft and also designing the torture lights so that they felt bright but didn't blow out your eyes in HDR. So they're actually much dimmer than they appear to be. And But we had uh, kind of vintage lenses and a streak filter and kind of a little nose wax on the lens to kind of smear it all out and, and, and really put you in, in Marty's perspective of being kept awake for three days mm-hmm. and being tortured by these lights you know, all of this is basically planning and testing. We, we tested a variety of lights, a variety of aging, a variety of globes. And of course, depending on how much you dim down, it changes the color temperature and, and it changes the color temperature in relation to that soft light that's in the room. And so all of that was tested and designed and then implemented and it, and it worked great. And again, because of an episodic schedule, all of those scenes of Jason being tortured and all the scenes uh, uh, that take place in there of him just having uh, discussions with Navarro first through the opening and then later in person when Navarro's slapping him around a bit, that's all being shot in one day, you know, and it's like an 11, 11, 12 hour day. It's not a particularly long day either. So there's a lot to do in a very uh, short period of time.
3: Just one quick follow up on that. I I recall that the look inside of the in the torture room and almost the Navarro compound too has almost a monochromatic feel. Not always, of course, because there's like stained glass windows and there's all kinds of other stuff. I, I recall, and then you do have that flashback to when Martin Bird's younger and stuff. I I think it's mm-hmm. his mother in the hospital or, or something like that. But it's, his dad's um, dying. Yeah, his dad's dying in the hospital. That's right. And uh, but it's not jarring at all. You definitely you know where you're you're at and every time and you have more color information, but it's still, it's like a different sort of almost more muted. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the choices with maybe the monochromasticity, if that's a real <laughs> word, uh, <Wow. laughs> maybe making it monochromatic and uh, still, I mean, there's still color in there, but it, it really is like the yellow sodium sort of feel. And, yeah. And I, I know that that's a, that's a sickly color, but it's, it's also really fun for this. So
0: yeah, so again, in terms of uh, threading those storylines together, you know in the Ozarks things are generally very blue, very cyan mm-hmm. And so in one sequence we're coming from Ben and Ruth at dusk having a nice moment at uh, you know sitting on the sofas outside at the at the Langmore compound and that's gonna transition into the torture cells. So I have essentially a scene sh- taking place at dusk with these sodium lights or or warm tungsten lights and that yellow light is essentially giving Ben and Ruth just a little bit of an edge light and a little bit of a kick on their face so when you go from this incredibly blue world to Marty half in a trance with that same yellow right that was just a hint in the Ozarks but now it's the overarching color in the torture Room, you know, that's the string that carries you through that transition, right? Oh, interesting. And as we're as we're pushing in on him, and that light is smearing through frame, we go to a flashback of him watching through a window, a, a, a mute conversation of his mom talking to the doctor, and he's understanding that his father is not going to survive. And the the curtains behind him that di- uh, again, David and I and the and the set dresser Kim uh, uh, really played with color and texture and found these like loose weave curtains that had the this amber hue and we were you know putting just a a hint of sunlight on this narrowest of balconies that we had just enough room to put a light out there and and create this little streak of this amber light that kicked off of that curtain uh and and again continued that color and then we're in the navarro conference room with the huge stained glass windows and, and an overall very lush stone walls wood surfaces reflective surfaces you know deep colors very sophisticated, he's very, very wealthy. I mean, this room is 100 feet long, but the warmth has a a texture and a grit to it that it, it's, you know, it's like playing against type. It's like, it's it's warm, it's luxurious. The practicals in there are, uh, again, matching that same hue of the yellow, that the yellow amber that's carrying us through this, through all of these cuts. And you feel like you're in this sophisticated world and yet there's something really off about it that at any moment, your life is at the whim of how this guy feels. So, you know, it's a huge, it's a big collaboration. It's, it's. I mean, we, I tend to use all intelligent lighting so we can change colors and match colors uh, and change colors at video, I can be at Video Village and say, you know, that that light needs more green and, and to be 200 degrees warmer and it happens in five seconds, you know, on a console. Um, So whether we're on location or on stage. But a lot of those things have to be kind of woven in with the art department, with set dressing, with wardrobe. And when it all clicks, you know, you kind of look like a hero because it all it all cuts together nicely. And I'm proud of that collaboration and the results on screen. I
2: just I just love the the way that you're describing the way the color plays and how it was kind of reflected in all of these time periods and all of these different Scenes and uh it makes me want to go back and rewatch the episode and kind of look for the color symbolism you know it's that that kind of stuff is 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 fascinating so Ilya, you had another question about Ozark before I move on
3: yeah, I did um the last like four episodes of Ozark season three, they almost kind of play out like, like a movie. And I know that, uh, that you did them with Alec Sakharov and Alec, of course, right. a friend of the show and a very strongly opinionated person. He's got a real vision that he tries to make come across. Uh, I think what, at least in all the stuff that he does, how, can you talk a little bit about that collaboration and essentially having like, uh, four hours worth of, television kind of like uh, all produced back to back to back together for this uh for the show
0: yeah that's a lot to unpack there uh, <laughs> f- it, it was four <laughs> hours of content it was by far the hardest thing I've done in the sense that because I come from indie features and, and I moved into tv and a lot of the stuff I shoot shoot is two blocks at a time I've always just memorized the scripts and memorized the schedule and. And I can tell you any moment of anything that we're doing and how. And then all of a sudden we doubled that workload, and, and um, I'd be like, "What's wait? Which scene is this? And where? What episode are we in?" You know. So it is it is a lot more managerial and kind of you know. I, I mean, I take a lot of notes anyway, but you're. I had my iPad in my hand quite a bit more because you're, if you if any of the things I just discussed about boss fight, for instance, to track those kind of things across four episodes. Um, it, I just wasn't smart enough to keep all of that in my head at any given time. So now I'm looking at a bunch of notes and referencing them every morning. You know, I, I generally get to work half an hour early to be able to do that and walk the set. So my relationship with Alec is in pre-production, we go to a location. We don't necessarily figure out any shots yet because he likes to sit at home and kind of design a lot of the shots, but I'll take pictures with my DSLR from angles that I think are the most photogenic. I'll talk to him about the pros and cons in terms of it's a daylight exterior, of where the light's coming from or fighting the light at a particular location, those kind of things. And then he takes that all into account. He does a extensive shot list, then he gives me the shot list, then I break it down and then I tell him, "Great, great, great. I am really concerned about this. I don't know how we're going to do this at that location. Should we find another location? Can we adapt this? Can you know, there's a little bit of a give and take about Yes, we can do all of this, but we have to do these three angles before eleven AM or I'm screwed. I don't know how to deal with this location here beyond mm-hmm. eleven AM. So if you if you're if you can't do it that way, then let's find another location. You know, those all those kind of conversations. So he does have a very specific vision and approach to the camera staging and blocking. It's also very complicated in the sense that he wants to do long developing wonders, and then maybe another camera that comes in and does a close up. So now you're lighting for a wide that sees 200 degrees as it develops. And then another camera that comes in and does a close up and it's all in one setup. So figuring out how to light those things and maintain the tone and the integrity of the lighting is is also quite difficult. So that takes a lot of planning. Um, And then we have just kind of large set pieces like the gala you know and and doing the daytime work and the nighttime work at that location and again working with art department to integrate the look into the design into the uh, the lighting into the set and and all those kind of things so we also have room for improvisation because we might have a plan for something and then he watches a rehearsal between Laura and Jason and he's like we can't have a cut here It's crazy so let's just do this in a wonder you know and mm-hmm. then we'll we'll kind of redesign it on the day right
2: so i kind of just want to back up and, and kind of talk about your beginnings and uh, i always ask people when they read a script what is it what is the first thing you see as you're reading the script
0: so the very first read i do of a script i turn my cinematographer brain off mm-hmm. completely and I read the script like I'm reading a book or not, uh, you know, a novel uh, or watching a show or whatever. I just ingest it strictly as a spectator and I consider what my enjoyment level was. And if it's good, and if I think that I wanna be a part of that, then I read it again. And now I start to think about all the challenges, all of the exciting aspects of it, everything that is gonna be part and parcel of executing it you know, as a production. So the very first reading, I try not to tinge it with anything technical or anything on the side of execution. Like how the hell do they they think they're going to do this on this budget or, you know, any of that stuff that, you know, tinges your enjoyment. And then when I was first starting out in indie features, I would break it down seven ways. You know, it would have like every kind of note in there imaginable. And I'd come to a meeting like fully loaded with ideas. And then you realize like the director's vision might be not that at all. And then you have to kind of rewire yourself to what they're saying. And, mm. and, and sometimes what they're saying, it's not, it, cause it's not about right and wrong, you know, It's about understanding that approach and that vision and saying, I can get down with that. I I can execute that really well. I can enhance that. I can bring my touch to that, you know, or saying this is not a good fit. I don't think this is going to work for me or for them, you Mm know. Um, So now I still, on second reading, I still have a bunch of ideas because sometimes you're going to get a director who's like, I want your take on the flashbacks, you know, because I've been toying with X, Y, and Z and I wanted to see what you thought and you want to be prepared to answer those questions, you know, but that's not really the thing I start with. I start with more of a intellectual and emotional response to the story and what, you know, and ask questions about what's important to the, to the people who are making it. You know, how much of this, have you already thought about the way it should look and how much do you want to discover together? You know, those mm-hmm. kind of questions.
2: So to kind of go to sort of your origin, uh, you know, when was the first moment in your life that, that it occurred to you that cinematography was like a thing you could do?
0: 17. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was very clear and it was defined from that moment on. I actually didn't know the, the, the title cinematographer or director of photography quite yet, but I was, I was shooting skateboarding videos. I was in an, in a magnet arts high school. So I was doing photography, drawing. Where was this? Uh, uh, Miami, the mm. New World School of the Arts. It's like a, it's like that famous fame school in New York. It's the same kind of oh, deal cool. for fi- fine arts school with that, all the So you already had a fine arts bent
2: before that moment, though. Like fine arts was yeah. where you were headed anyway.
0: Yeah, I was kind of in magnet arts programs through my childhood. Never considered cinema other than I loved cinema. You know, I watched so many movies with my dad. It was crazy. But it was always just this enjoyment. I'd never considered a career in it. But I was shooting skateboarding videos and I had, it was a lot of fun. I liked skateboarding a lot, but I also, I think I liked being the guy with the camera more. Mm -hmm. And then I I did this uh, uh, class my senior year with the University of Miami, my senior year in high school with the University of Miami, where we basically did their Super 8 film class. And it was an experimental kind of beta, uh, see if this was a good idea. And most of the class was like, F this, like this is too much work senior year and they bailed and I convinced everyone to give me their film. And <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, I just was like a kid in a candy store and it, it just clicked. It, it was like everything that I was interested in all came together artistically, uh, intellectually, uh, in terms of just the idea of, uh, of how you have to go through all these logical steps to get to, Mm -hmm. a a final product, you know, the, the, the problem solving of it, it was great. It was really, really fun to, and a lot of work. And, you know, I had my short film that I had to do almost everything on and I was really just blown away by how much fulfillment it gave me. And so then I um, started really studying what the departments were and how you make a movie because it wasn't the writing that was interesting to me. I wanted there to be a good script, but I didn't want to be the one doing it. It wasn't <laughs> the directing that was interesting to me. I didn't want to m- talk motivation with the actors and their and their storylines. Of course, you need in- incredible actors that connect with the audience, because otherwise there's, there's no story there. Uh, but it was the image making. It was the craft. It was putting it all together. And uh, my freshman year in, in college, which I went to a, a fine arts school in, uh, in Baltimore, Maryland Institute College of Art deep in the bowels of the uh, library I found like 15 e- years worth of American cinematographer and so then I started kind of plowing through that <laughs> oh, wow. and so you know it was basically a done deal at that point I was like this is this is what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life it just took a while to um, <laughs> to get there so you studied film in Baltimore no I fine arts you know because I had uh, I, was already, I had already applied to schools at this oh. point, and I, and I had gotten a scholarship to go to art school and to get an education.
2: Was it a specific art, art in particular that you were focused on?
0: Uh, I was a very good draftsman, so I was doing drawings, like fine art drawing, and I had you know, decent grades. And so I got a, uh, almost a full ride to go to college, which was awesome. But I, I didn't picture myself drawing for a living. You know? I just didn't know how that would even work you know? Um, uh, And, and, and the idea of drawing for money was weird to me, you know? Um, So I kind of created my own undergrad curriculum for film in a way. And then I went to grad school for cinematography afterward. Oh, where'd you go? Florida State, right at the last moments of really of 35, you know? So we shot a lot of film, uh, which I find to be great I, there and there's, it makes so much sense to be digital now and on these really sophisticated cameras and not to have the, the cost and the headaches of film and dailies and sending stuff off and waiting for it to come back and all that stuff. But for me personally, living and dying by those mistakes, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. having to get it right and without seeing it on a monitor you know, and having, sh- and I, and because I was like not wanting to direct, I wanted to shoot, I got to shoot a lot there, you know, cause you're, most people want to direct, right? Yeah. And then, and, and then when I started in the business, it, it took several years before I shot a feature on digital. They were, they were still on 35 or super 16 because di- the first wave of really professional digital cameras were just prohibitively expensive. So it was still cheaper to shoot film. So having that training ground was great. I still carry a meter on set now. I still use my meter to kind of set baseline so that I don't lose track of where I am. So I'm not relying on digital tricks. So I'm not relying on a DIT. I keep everything kind of, you know, consistent as I would on as if it was being transferred in a one light, you know, film scenario. But yeah, you know, then I moved out to, uh, I was fortunate enough to get a uh, ASC heritage award, like the student award for a film I, I did at FSU and so I thought I was going to come out to L.A. and start shooting movies like, you know, uh, um, like the second I got off the plane. And of course, it, it it it's a long, hard slog, you know, to get to a place where where you're shooting decent content. Uh,
2: so when you moved out to L.A., is that where you started doing the bulk of the indie films that you did or were you doing those? on the East coast before then.
0: No, I I moved to LA right away after school and that's, you know, it started shooting freebies and short films and promos and music videos and whatever I can get my hands on. Mm. And then eventually it, it became micro budget features and then small budget indie features. And they, you know, got a little bit bigger and a little more interesting and, I did a handful of features for a, a director I met in uh, film school. And Ch- uh, she was Chinese and we did a couple of movies in China. Oh, wow. Uh, and then I got a couple more movies in China with American American directors that were doing um, co-productions because, because the, the first two movies were kind of big hits. Uh, uh, but I had to kind of recalculate because I, I had a wife and a son and I didn't want to um, pick up and move to Asia at at that point. So uh, I had to kind of wean myself off of uh, the (laughs) Chinese movies and kind of fight my way back into the American market. And then a couple of years after that, I broke into episodic.
2: I, I kind of want to ask you uh, one question about like starting out though, um, and that's that I, I sort of see two schools of thought amongst people who are like fresh out of film school and they want to be cinematographers. One is they're going to go be a company electric and then a gaffer and then maybe eventually be a cinematographer, or they're going to go be a camera assistant. You know, they'll be a clapper loader and then they'll be a second AC and a first AC and then eventually they'll be an operator. Then they'll be a, a DP. Uh, and then the other school of thought is I'm just going to shoot. I, I'm going to, I'm only going to DP. Which school did you fall into? And, and, you know, what are your thoughts about what I, cause also you could just tell me that I'm full of shit, which I might be.
0: No, I mean, that's the question I get now from alumni and from people I like, like, you know, you have mentorship programs and things like that. And that's the, always the question people ask. I don't have a particularly good answer because I was like, I'm going to only shoot. But then I started gaffing because I mm-hmm. knew how to light and I had, you have friends that are alumni or people that you meet, and they're like, "Oh, we're doing this million-dollar movie, and I really want you to gaff it for me." And then you go, "Okay, great," you know. And and yeah. then the projects that I was gaffing got, kept getting bigger, and so I got into the union as a gaffer. I was doing very, you know, decent commercials and pilots and you know bigger projects. And so in hindsight, it definitely slowed down having that breakthrough as a cinematographer yeah for sure i mean no, at a certain no point you just
2: have to pull the, pull the chain and say i'm not doing it anymore correct e- now, even if i'm going to make less money I, i'm only yeah, a do lot this.
0: a lot less money let me tell you because it was like two <laughs> two years of like making half as much mm-hmm. as you were before and you know you're not a kid at this point you're you're you know you got <laughs> responsibilities and 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 so it's really hard to make those kind of decisions now everyone you know there's 2020 hindsight looking back at it when i made my transition into episodic and we had the logistics and the and the jenga puzzles of all the things happening simultaneously and the rigging and the wrapping and this and the scale of the lighting and having to make all these decisions on paper because you don't have time to change it when you get there right would i have been ready to do that had i not been gaffing these projects that were much bigger than anything i was shooting yep. so i don't i don't know the answer to that i'm i'm a, guessing no I was also very aware and technically savvy on the lighting side as we're moving into intelligent lighting and wireless dmx and all of these things that are you know happening that lighting when we talk about cameras all the time lighting has made just as much of a technological transformation from the days of film it is incredibly sophisticated now and the things that we're asking of the lighting departments is isn't is nuts i mean it's just it's gotten so sophisticated and being in the early adoption of those things as a, if your gaffer isn't having that knowledge of a cinematographer saying we're going to go for it and i guarantee you you're going to be a convert and you're going to love it and then mm-hmm. having control over color and intensity all wirelessly or all uh, you know from a uh, from a console or a iPad or whatever and being able to do all of these amazing things without putting somebody on a ladder next to the actors to, like, put a piece of gel in a light, you know? And, like, yeah. literally everyone on the set is looking at that one person because you're trying to shoot when now it could just be done silently in two seconds, right? So, you know, it, it, it it's like anything else. It definitely slowed down being a working DP, for sure. It's just about... I don't really regret any of the choices I made because you never know how those dominoes fall, you know.
2: Uh, So so let's go ahead and talk about your TV work, because your TV work is is extensive. And I, I sort of feel like the the picture of the dream that we all have in our heads is I'm going to move out to Hollywood. I'm going to make movies. But over the last, you know, whatever, 10, 15 years, television has started doing stuff that's just as interesting in every way as movies, even though, as you were saying, the schedules are still tight. Um, you know, like the the creativity and the and the ingenuity that goes into it is pretty amazing. So, could you talk about your your first show was from Dust Till Dawn, correct?
0: Yes. So and actually, got, did you,
2: was your first episode with Ed Sanchez by any chance?
0: It was on Dust Till Dawn. Uh-huh. Carlos Coto was the showrunner, and uh, I just could not break into episodic. I couldn't get an interview. I was an indie feature guy, and another showrunner, Alfredo Barrios, who I'd done a short film with, said meet this guy and i got an interview and it was like you know one of those things like a short film that i did for like no money two years earlier is the reason why i got in the room and carlos is cuban and i'm cuban Mm -hmm. and so we spent 45 minutes talking about miami and the miami herald and where he used (laughs) to where he used to work and and all this stuff and then in the last five minutes we talked about the show and he's like do you want to meet robert and then i had an interview with robert and it went well and he liked my reel and and that was it i mean it's just like 10, 12 years of clawing to try to get somewhere. And then it's like one short film and a phone call and, you, and you're in the room. Now, obviously, once you get there, you can't fail. And it's a really fast paced machine that you're trying to keep on the tracks. Uh, but luckily it went, it went well. Eduardo Sanchez directed the first episode that I ever shot for Episodic. And, and we had a great time together and we did some cool stuff. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't know how TV was shot. Mm-hmm. So I was saying like, we should do this, we should do that. And why don't we try this and let's do this. And, and so like people were like, okay, yeah. And then, and then we would just do it and it would work out. And um, then, the, you know, the camera operators and I hit it off and then I hit it off with the gap and the key grip. It was kind of a slow burn of like everyone feeling each other out. And then everyone, and then it was like, we're doing cool stuff and we're making our days and we're wrapping on time. So it, it, it just became a very fun environment to experiment and to do and so Robert is not one of those people who's like going to have a mandate about coverage or Mm -hmm. uh, there's a certain way we do things. He wants it to be cool and edgy and fun and cinematic, you know, so it was it was a lot of fun. And then from there, uh, it was kind of you're, you're kind of biting your nails, like, is this just a one-off and I'm done? Like, I'm going to go right back to, to searching and doing these indie movies that keep pushing and, and, and you don't have no st- stability. And then luckily it, things kind of clicked and it was off to the races a bit. And so I, I've been pretty busy in Episodic since then, but I have taken the time to do a couple micro-budget features that I thought were really cool and fit into the schedule, you know?
2: So let's go through some of your other stuff. So uh, you shot, besides Ozark, obviously, you shot two other series that I've seen, Mr. Mercedes and uh, Strange Angel, but you shot also Raising Dion and Six. And you know, you, you, you've done uh, quite a lot of stuff. Can we talk about Mr. Mercedes? Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you said you created, you were brought on to create the look of that, correct?
0: Yeah, I came on early. It was like the most prep I've ever had in episodic, which was really great. Uh, the producing director is Jack Bender. It's a David E. Kelly script for a Stephen King book. and so the first season we you know i came in you know a month or two before i even officially started prep to to travel to charleston and find locations and find a house that we could take full ownership of it and like even knock down walls and make portals and 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 really figure out how we were going to work there for a long time and it was just a, a wonderful collaboration with Jack and with Marek, mm-hmm. the production designer, and we built it from scratch, looking at all you know colors and tones and 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 textures, and defining the world that that lead character was in, and defining the world of the villain. And uh, it was a very it was a period piece, but it was just a few years in the back. It was just post the the great. Uh, uh you know, the great recession, I guess we're calling yeah. it. Right. For just, just after 2008. Those are like it the was, hardest
2: period pieces to do though. Like it's easy to yeah. do 1953. It's very hard to do like five years ago.
0: Yeah. And, and, and there was also conceptually, we did some really fun stuff with the opening because, you know, you meet all these characters that you think are going to be your characters and then we kill all of them. And <laughs> so we got, we, we basically defined an aesthetic together for the show and then, None of that was in the opening uh, until the until the the vehicle shows up and and things take a turn. So we actually, you know, we, we're meeting all these people. It's all verite, handheld, very loosey goosey, kind of rolling from this person to that person. The shots aren't perfect, right on eyeballs. It's maybe like this one's like a a, a three quarter profile, but the reverse is over the shoulder, full front, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, it, it, and, 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 and very loose. And you, you're there for like, you know, 10 pages of meeting everybody and dealing with all these people at a job fair. And then this Mercedes pulls up and all of a sudden the camera goes perfectly rock solid on stabilized heads, like slow pushing on the car past the headlights, you know, behind the car, booming up to reveal the, people, the that headlights shot. turning yeah. on. And so, so as soon as the camera became rock solid, and really slow and really methodical. That was actually the aesthetic of the show. But when you switch to that, and of course with music cues and everything else, all of a sudden you're like, these these shots that are supposed to be kind of very smooth are incredibly uh, suspenseful, right? You're just like, yeah. oh my God, what's about to go down here? And of course it's it's very fast and very violent. And all of a sudden everyone you just were introduced to thinking like, these are cast of characters as we follow them through this adventure all of them are dead um, and, and and then we you know the aesthetic that we established with the car is essentially the aesthetic of the show
2: no I, I saw it and I remember that and I didn't I mean I didn't put that together but there's that moment where it's like oh there's a shift like something just changed right. and, uh, and it's just a, a really interesting way to to go about kind of unpacking how to do that. Uh, But let's get into Strange Angel because to me, Strange Angel uh, has a personal resonance for me. We all have those uh, true stories that kind of stick in our craw as like, this would be a great movie or a great TV series or something like this story is just unbelievably fascinating and you tell it to people over and over again and for me for 20 years that was jack parsons right you know the the guy who founded the jet propulsion laboratory but also was uh, a follower of alistair crowley and was into all kinds of weird ass drug and sex magic and and did all kinds of crazy stuff so to me that was a show that like when i heard it was being made i was like god damn and then i'd read the book it was based on Strange Angel, because, you know, I was in my own mind preparing to make my own movie out of it. Um, so you came on for the second season. The first season had already been done. And right. um, talk a little bit about because uh, you, off mic, you were telling us right before we recorded that that like part of the deal was it was a different look than the first season anyway.
0: Yeah. So Andrew Palermo and, and David Klein and and uh, had done the first season. And at that point, it's him as a he's very poor he's trying to break in, he's just discovering this kind of sex cult religion. And so the season ends with a cliffhanger and then push forward a few years to the opening of the second season. And he's very wealthy. He's got a company called Aerojet. So they're creating rockets for the military, which is what's paying the bills while he's also trying to figure out how to like create intercontinental missiles and also rockets that will take us to the moon which is really all he cared about Mm -hmm. meanwhile he's heavily into the sex cult and they actually move into his mansion on millionaire's row in pasadena yeah Um, yeah. so so it was a big leap forward in the only a few years but a big leap forward in the progression of the story we're we're heavy into the war effort Um, and so there's essentially two storylines and he's trying to keep those things separate and they keep interfering and colliding with each other. And it's his work at Aerojet, his security clearances with the military, and then his sex magic cult that he thinks will help him bend the will of the universe into whatever he wants it to be. Right. Mm-hmm. Which the way things go, in some ways you're like, yeah, he's probably right. I mean he's somehow bending <laughs> the will of the universe because he's doing all this stuff that every every scientist thought was impossible beforehand, you know? So, you know, I came on I was very clear with them. We had a great conversation, but I was clear with the creators, like, you know, I wanna expand the look with the story. Otherwise it's not necessarily that interesting to me if I'm trying to do the the same things. And they were were open to that and it was a great bunch. Uh, uh, David and Mark were incredible and the production designer Warren was phenomenal. And so we evolved the look, which part of it is in the production design because it's these lavish locations now. I mean, he's very wealthy. Uh, the wardrobe. I mean, every, it's every every period car. It's like, you know, you're you you you're, you're on a scout and you're thinking about the way these things look and then you get there with all the period wardrobe and cars and everything else and it just comes to life in a way that's incredible. But we, you know, we changed the camera systems, we changed the LUTs, we changed the lensing. You know, I went with kind of modern uh, lenses for the military and Aerojet storylines and with vintage glass for everything dealing with the sex cult and and the home life, mm-hmm. and also had a, a variation on the camera LUT for those those two worlds, and uh, it was it, it's it was very, really really gratifying fun show to be a part of. Again, a great collaboration with the art department, with the creators, wonderful list of directors that came through for season two, and uh, we just had great fun. It's just so unfortunate that it got so few eyeballs. I mean, we we're in this world of the golden age of cinema uh, of, yeah. of tv you know of episodic and so there's just so much content out there that to, to find eyeballs is, is a big part of the challenge
2: so uh doing a show where you kind of have a guy coexisting in in a couple of worlds did you do anything sort of like what you were describing earlier with ozark with with kind of color coding the light did you do anything like that to kind of weave those stories together to kind of put a hint of one in the other at all times or was that not appropriate stylistically?
0: The the weaving became about bringing them closer and closer together the further we go on because he you know the separation doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Right? As a story element, as a character, it's they're all stepping all over each other and it's a it's a mess, right? Yeah. That he has to. And so we do kind of weave those looks into each other, so it starts out much more separate and and slowly blends together. The separation is still very subtle. You know, I wouldn't say as a as a layman you are going to immediately understand any of that. You know, you might you're definitely going to feel it. You know, there's more hailing mm-hmm. flare and there's a, a softer look to the lensing and and everything that comes along with the home life and the and the cult. You know, and in Aerojet. It's all metal and glass and with the military and rockets and it, things are a little harder, cleaner, sharper, you know? Um, mm-hmm. so it, but it just feels intrinsic to what's in front of the camera. And so as things get more surreal and he becomes kind of a heavy drug user and reality starts to unravel a bit for him, we also push the camera further and push the lensing further in, in those moments. Armando, this has been great. Uh, where can people find you? Solacefilm.com is my website. And I'm also on Instagram. Uh, the handle is CineSolace.
2: Cool. Well, everybody, uh, you know, please uh definitely follow him and best of luck at the Emmys. Very excited about that.
0: Woohoo! that's great. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, thanks guys. It is a thank- it's stiff competition, so I'm not keeping my <laughs> hopes up, but it's incredible <laughs> honor to be in that list of names. It's it's an incredible group every year, but this year in particular is is, is dynamite.
2: Yeah. Some amazing work being done on television these days. And uh, and your work is is high up on that list. So thank you so much for uh, making the time to talk to us. Thanks. So that was Armando Salas. Armando, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and best of luck at the Emmys.
3: Uh, Yes, indeed. Hey, Ben, you know what time it is?
2: What time is it?
3: It's kind of time to pay the bills, but it's not really bill- kind of kind of. Yes, I got to I got to do a, a quick commercial for a giveaway we are doing uh, actually at the beginning of our last episode. Uh, you might have heard me talking about how we're giving away the brand new Sony Alpha 7s three, which is a very hotly anticipated mirrorless camera that records all kinds of 4k goodness and we've partnered with a few other companies including a company called the or I should say a a Instagram community called the Wonderless Collective uh, as they, they are um, also partnered with a couple of other groups called one's called Creative West who's a long-term customer of hot ride cameras and another group called adventure labs and get so tripods. And essentially there are instructions on how to enter the contest. It costs you nothing and it's open to everyone in the world. So if you are Wait, listening, can I,
2: can I do it or would everyone be mad if I yeah, win the a 7s S3?
3: You are not qual. Sorry. You and your immediate family is not eligible. Sorry, Ben. That's Wait, uh, not even my son. No,
2: but all he's ever, all he ever says is a 7s S3. Those are the only words uh, he knows. So far. Yeah, I know. he's two, he's, he's
3: two. Uh, but, but no, he he's not, Um, he's not, eligible so mm. so the way that you enter and if you are in Botswana or the UK or Australia wherever you are our partners have agreed to cover the shipping to get it to you so I mean yeah it's like it's what it's, made you
2: start with Botswana I'm just curious uh, y- you know
3: it just it, it seemed like probably a pretty low subscriber count area but maybe we got a couple there I just figured I'd...
2: we got to work on our Botswana numbers yeah we, we, we do for sure
3: but uh but regardless <laughs> <laughs> regardless if you are within the sound of my voice you can enter this contest very easily by going to instagram going to at the cinepod which is us and then there's a link in the bio that will take you to uh enter the contest same thing if you were to go to at hot rod cameras there's a link there that takes you to the page where you need to enter there's a couple of steps you have to follow a couple people it gives you bonus actions in case you want an extra chance to win uh already thousands of people have have entered and it goes until september until the end around the end of september i want to say september 29th uh i I will actually have to double check that right now. I mean,
2: you got to do this. The a7S Mark III is going to be like definitely one of the main big hot cameras that are coming out like in the immediate future. And uh, I wish I had one. So,
3: well, it and you uh, can
2: give it to me. Feel free to give it to me.
3: We're also giving away. uh, There's also a tripod as part of this giveaway. And there's also a hundred dollar hot rod cameras uh, gift card. And, you know the whole combined thing is worth over $4,000. It's $4,200. This is not like, this is not a small giveaway. It's, it's a pretty awesome thing. So yeah, if you go to uh, the link and then you click on that, it will then take you to the page where you can uh, you can do all this great stuff. So uh, totally go do that. And uh, you could be a winner. It could be awesome.
2: Here's what I want. I want someone to do that from one of our listeners to do that. I want them to win the camera. I don't uh, want them to make a movie on that camera that we then bring them on the podcast and interview them about. That would be awesome. That would be the best thing that ever happened. <laughs> it, Hands down. It, it, it could be you.
3: 100% could, could be you. It's, um,
2: yeah, it's, it's open to everybody.
1: And now, short ends. All right. So, so,
2: so <laughs> Ilya, it is time for our patented, uh, patented. Patent, patent pending uh, short end segment. Okay. Uh, what is your pet obsession of this week? Who? good question. Uh, no, my, my pet obsession,
3: I, I think I got to take it back. I got to take it back to, we talked a couple of weeks ago about, about the controversy over the new movie cuties, which is on Netflix. And, uh, I went and saw it. Uh, it,
2: I, I haven't seen it yet.
3: And, um, you know, it's French. It's, uh, <laughs> Oh man, I got to read. <laughs> yes. yeah, uh, yes, it is subtitled. Um, you know, here I liked the movie, and uh, but it is French. It's got a very French ending uh, that doesn't exactly put a button on it. It just sort of—I'm just going to say there's sort of like this floating into space shot that's kind of goofy and interesting. But the, the story and the journey that gets you to this sort of nebulous ending, where I guess you you make your own sort of decisions about what happens next, uh, is good and it's worthwhile. And it, I I don't regret seeing it at all. I think that it is very interesting, and we've all known. Uh, you know, let's say preteen girls that behaved outside of what is uh, age appropriate for them. And this this movie tells tells that
2: story. Well, and this movies, this movies generated a ton of uh, friction, frankly, like I would say negative press because of some key art that was released that over sexualized these girls, which apparently was not done by the filmmakers and is not a, a frame of the movie, but it was like some key art. That somebody in the marketing department had cooked up, if I'm not mistaken.
3: Yeah. uh, Netflix immediately apologized for that. But it did spark the ire of a lot of conservative groups, especially conservative Christian groups. And it even prompted today Ted Cruz to come out and uh, say that it's child pornography, which, you know, hey, thanks, Ted Cruz. I don't think you watched it. Because one thing I can I can certainly tell you is that this is this is very much a movie. This is not child pornography. And to draw that sort of distinction, I think, is uh, is really, really awful for the filmmakers. And uh, at, at I mean, I would say tracked totally the wrong attention, the wrong type of people by saying that that's what that is, because it is most definitely not. But, you know, when was the last time a politician grandstanded over something like this? I, I mean, it's never not, it's never <laughs> happened before. That's a
2: brand new thing. Ted Cruz is innovating. Brand new things to do as a politician, which is to get outraged over a movie <laughs> you haven't seen. I always actually like to think, and you know, this this will date me a little bit. But when the Martin Scorsese movie, The Last Temptation of Christ, was coming out, sure. I was still in high school, and uh, Universal Studios was being built at the time. And mm-hmm. in the movie, there is a fantasy. Universal sequence. Studios, Florida, you mean. University yes I was sorry growing up in Orlando and uh, in the movie I guess I've actually I I have seen it but it's been a really long time but there's a tasteful uh, fantasy sequence between Jesus and Mary Magdalene and it's Barbara Hershey and Willem Dafoe and because of that the, the Christian right in Florida went Batshit, bonkers, nutball crazy. And they put up billboards all over the place that said boycott Universal Studios, God is not mocked. Now, as coincidence would have it, and this, there's a much longer story behind this guy, my father knew uh this guy named George Crossley who was behind all of that movement. Oh, really? Years later, he saw the movie and he was like an Uber Christian guy who had a call in show and uh his whole story goes off the rails. It, it, it's a great story, uh, a great and terrible story. But before his before the the his undoing that actually sent him to jail, he... Wow, uh, he, this he, does he, sound like a story. He, oh, George Crosley's a fascinating person. Uh, he saw the movie and said, I was totally wrong about everything and took it all back. It's like, <laughs> oh, okay. And you know, my guess is if we uh, clockwork-oranged uh, Ted Cruz and made him sit and watch Cutie's he would be like, "Oh, it's a documentary about some girls trying to grow up."
3: And it, it's 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 truly not a documentary. It's definitely fiction, but it ha- it definitely feels. Oh, I thought it was a
2: documentary. No, it's it not, shows it's you what not, I know. No, it's not even. Leave that in. Let my stupidity flow, <laughs> flow from my face like a rainbow from the sky.
3: <laughs> All right, Ben Katz, you, you heard him. Let him. I thought it him. was a
2: documentary. I don't know anything.
3: Not not a documentary. No, it's a oh. it's it's a narrative, and it's about. Uh, and you know, it's interesting cause I, I got insights into Senegalese life. Well, that's that's and culture. the big thing is it's
2: a Senegalese movie directed by a woman too, correct? Directed
3: by a woman, a, a French, a French Sen- Senegalese woman who is, it takes place in France and it, um, has to do with, uh, a lot of turmoil in the young protagonist's life and including, uh, her dad, her Senegalese father taking on a second wife, which, uh, yeah, that, that's, you know, uh, the, the the polygamy, I didn't even I didn't even under I mean, I understood it happens still in some places of the world, but I didn't think of that as like going to be a central story point for this movie and explaining a lot mm-hmm. of the, you know, depression and ennui and sort of like life struggle that the protagonist is going through. So it's no, it's 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 a really interesting story. and um I, I think that it it deserves to be seen. And to call it child pornography is just is just awful and it completely undermines uh, so many you know, it undermines a movie that, uh, frankly, if it was about young boys, it wouldn't have raised too many eyebrows. There's been plenty of stories like that, but because it's girls now, it's um, now it's it's something else.
2: How frustrating! Well, uh, I, I I've been thinking about checking it out. I will definitely check it out on your recommendation, uh, despite the fact that I'm going to have to read. <laughs> And and I know that you're playing
3: that up because that is a true thing that people say. But I have never heard you once complain about subtitles. So
2: I I, well, actually, Alicia, my wife, has been watching this Swedish film uh, series, TV series called George Scott on Shudder. And it's really good. It's it's kind of a police procedural with like crazy, insane horror overtones. Hmm. And it's really well done. But it is subtitled. And I have to say that it uh, it really does cut into my words with friends time. To uh, sit sit and watch it and have to read every word, and it's not that I'm incapable of doing it, but it, it's to say that if it doesn't have a propulsive plot that really keeps me engaged, and when my you know I'm just used to with a television series, not nonstop staring at the TV, uh, depending on what it is, and I can find that a little frustrating sometimes. Oh, so I, I didn't
3: know this about you. I didn't know this. I okay. mean,
2: I watch lots of foreign films. I don't have a problem with it. I think that it's it, it it's more of a comment. On uh, modern television pacing, where people take an idea that would probably make a great feature film and stretch it out into twelve hours, and it's like, come on, get to the thing, get to the thing. I just have no attention span.
3: All right, so so if given the option via your streaming provider to watch dubbed or
2: subtitled, what are you choosing? A hundred percent subtitled. I I I've no, I can't stand dubbed, and I want to you know feel the the performers' real performances. So uh, anyway. All right. Well, well, good. Hey, Ben, what's your short end this week? So, my short end is a, uh, an HBO documentary. I know that I've been uh, way on, in on these HBO documentaries lately, but they have one called The Vow that is about Nexium. Now, I don't recall if I, I probably did make it my short end some time ago. There was a podcast from uh, the CBC, the Canadian broadcast company, called Un- Uncover Escaping Nexium. This uh, covers similar. Subject matter. So Nexium was like some self empowerment seminars that you would spend a whole lot of money on that were also kind of a multi level organization. And if you know anything about me, you know that uh, those are two things that I deeply despise all in one place, right? Uh, but Nexium took it to the next level. The guy who ran it, his name is Keith uh, Rainier, and, and actually one of the top people in it, who was one of the stars of Smallville, an actor named Allison Mack, created. Uh, a sex cult bit of a sex cult within nexium and it included creating uh slave relationships between women so women became slaves to each other and uh and also included some branding that people did with uh a soldering iron i believe Oof. and uh i don't want to ruin all the extremely sort of details <laughs> extremely horrible uh uh, but, uh yeah, but don't don't uh, ruin that part. <laughs> but <laughs> but like anyone who knows me knows that I'm a sucker for a good story about a weird cult. This is a crazy weird cult. And the first episode of The Vow, you almost kind of go like, oh, Nexium wasn't that bad. Like, it's pretty good. But then they start getting into the dark, horrible stuff. One of the people they keep interviewing in it is this guy who I believe was one of the producers of a documentary called What the Bleep Do We Know. Oh, yeah. That's also a sack of shit. And uh, he got way into Nexium, and it sort of goes to show that uh, you know, people who fall for one brand of new age bullshit will fall for several kinds of new age bullshit. But it's, it's a beautiful documentary. I love the way it's made. There's kind of a weird psychedelic visual style that they go for in some of the transitions that kind of bring you into sort of this new agey thinking that these people are uh, engaging in. And, uh, you know, tons of archival footage, like so much archival footage that it almost looks like they had a sit down interview with Keith Raniere, which they most certainly did not, because I believe he is sitting on trial or waiting to be uh, currently sentenced or he might already be in jail. He's a monster. Alison Mack is a monster. And it's a really well made documentary that goes into the human psychology of why people fall for terrible things like this.
3: Damn. All right. Well, that's a, that's a, a strong endorsement. I think I have to check that out now. Oh, which I, I, I'd, yeah. I'd not, it not even crossed my radar in the slightest. So
2: yeah, yeah. It's, it's up on HBO and I also cannot recommend the podcast uncover escaping Nexium" highly enough when my friends on Facebook are like, what's a great podcast that I should listen to like a true crime kind of a thing, but maybe not so murdery. I'm like, listen to escaping Nexium" because it, it is paced like a thriller and this is not paced like a thriller because I feel like a lot of what they're doing is kind of show showing you how people were seduced into this before they really get into the dark shit but uh I think we're up to episode four now it's three or four and they're way into the dark shit already and uh it's uh quite a screwed up thing that people go for this stuff but i think that and, and actually this kind of loops back to what you were talking about is that a lot of americans currently are in th- the thrall of a weird cult called QAnon, and uh i i sort of feel like there's a weird overlap in the kind of thinking that allows you to kind of cycle into uh you know a perpetual nonsense uh spiral and uh you know nexium is a happy happy version of that uh, QAnon q anon is dark and creepy but uh you know, it, it, there, there's something in common with the people who fall for this crap. Wow.
3: Okay. Uh, it, it sounds like I got to strap in for that one, but, uh, but
2: yeah, I think people who don't know me very well just got a <laughs> giant slice <laughs> of my bias. Enjoy. Well, uh, enjoy. It's got, it's got rhubarb in it.
3: Are you into rhubarb? <laughs> <No>. I, <laughs> I was like, I always pictured you as an, not a rhubarb person. If I had to, if, I, if I'm being honest,
2: I'm I'm okay with rhubarb. <laughs> what makes somebody a rhubarb person
3: you threw you brought it up
2: what makes somebody a rhubarb person
3: well you know there's strawberry rhubarb pie and there's rhubarb pie and there's strawberry pie And <laughs> i would yeah. not have picked you as the strawberry rhubarb type
2: oh totally strawberry rhubarb all day long all day um, long baby
3: all right so hey i think that just about does it for another episode of the cinematography podcast who do we have to thank this week ben
2: Uh, Well, as always, our amazing producer, Alana Cody, who is kicking all the ass and we have an upcoming interview that uh, that we conducted last week that I part interview. Is it only going to be two parts? (laughs) It's so long. It's one of one of one of our bucket list DPs, somebody who we've wanted to get on the show for a long time. And Alana did not give up. And so we have interviewed this person and we are holding off on announcing it. But uh, the interview did not disappoint in any way. No,
3: not at all. I mean, this is
2: like if you like the Bradford Young interview, you might really enjoy this one, too. Indeed. So we have to thank her. We have to thank Ben Katz, who is uh, possibly uh, wanting to come to my house and murder me for all the extra crap I talked about on this one. (laughs) But thank you, Ben. Uh, You do an amazing job cutting these things together. Thank you, Ben. Uh, Let's also thank Kay Zalatrachi, who
3: might listen to this episode. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. I don't know if he's a Ozark fan or not. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe he will. Maybe. Maybe we'll make him one. Maybe we'll uh, <laughs> maybe we'll clockwork orange him and make him uh, make him watch Ozark. That's what we should do with your with
2: your uh, screening room with your screen clockwork orange. We, that? Should, we should totally <laughs> clockwork orange the hell out of that and bring people in and <laughs> and I'll stand behind them and put drops of saline in their eye <laughs> yeah. while they're forced to watch whatever. <laughs> I, I seem to remember there was an episode of this, uh, British,
3: uh, comedy series called the young ones where they, where they did that. So they, they did like I love a, that show. It's a yeah. good show. I
2: okay. was not, I was not, uh, referencing that, but that is a great show. Yeah. I mean, like for me as, uh, the father of a two year old, uh, the, I, I should be clockwork orange into watching Blippi. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I don't know what blippy is but it's got the appropriate If you don't know what blippy
2: is just 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 thank whatever deity you might believe in that you don't know what blippy is because it's the worst thing it, the worst, internet the internet was invented by the devil to get blippy into people's heads. <laughs> so is it like baby shark? Oh God, Baby Shark is fine. <laughs> I, I, I could go comparative Baby Sharks with you all day long. There's tons wow. of Baby Sharks. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Baby Shark is—it's a, a song. It's one song. Who gives a crap? And lots of people have covered it, and it's—it's it's a goddamn song. Blippi is a whole channel of the most infernal human being who ever lived, deciding to make a YouTube channel, and I—I uh, uh, I, and kids love it, and uh, I do not. <laughs> all right. Well, on that note,
3: uh, we will see you next week on the Cinematography Podcast.